HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. The two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do, though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m., where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing, taking place on Saturday, June 18th at Nettle Meadow Farm. For more information, visit nettlemeadowcheeseandspirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, meadowcheeseandspirits.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Most people know very little about the Basque region of Spain, and even less about its cuisine. But that's all changing rapidly, thanks to today's guest on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And the Basque region is this tiny little region straddling a small corner of Spain on the border of France, and in fact, part of France as well, in a land that's really not marked on any maps except their own, or regional maps. In fact, Mark Kurlansky, in his History of the Basque Region, said they are a puzzling contradiction. They're Europe's oldest nation without ever having been a country, and no one's ever been able to determine their origins or even their language, Euskara, the most ancient in Europe that's related to no other language on earth as far as we can tell. And for centuries, their influence 
has been felt in nearly every realm from religion to sports to commerce and certainly food. However, again, Kurlansky mentioned in his book that the Basque cuisine is almost impossible to translate. But my guest today, Alex Reich, and her husband, Eder Montero, have been doing a fantastic job of just that, translating the Basque cuisine at the restaurant Chiquito and two others, um, Il Quinto Pino and La Vara, the right. newest one, right? And they are even helping those of us who have no familiarity with the, the cuisine at all with their brand new book called Basque, the, okay. the Basque Book. The Basque Book. <laughs> How hard is that? The Basque Book. A love letter in recipes from the kitchen of Chiquito. Welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that And for the lovely introduction. <laughs> uh, introduction. Um, yeah, I'm sorry you can't either. Um, I often do the speaking on on behalf of both of us, and I often get credit on <laughs> both of us. So this is just a continuation of the same. Um, but he is holding down the restaurant so you can have a proper meal later if you want. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, with three restaurants and two young children, I, I as I said at the top of the show to you, I don't know how you do it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a one busy person, right? And this, and to write this book. Uh, you know, also is just a beautiful book by Ten Speed Press and um, your co-writer Rebecca Flint Marks, um, and of course the um, invaluable Penny Los Santos. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful book. First Thank of all, you. and but and you do you call it love letters and you write a beautiful story in the beginning and you are not from the Basque your family is not from the Basque region you're from you're from the Midwest I grew up in the Midwest my parents are from Argentina um, where there are a lot of like Basque and Galician um, immigrants and so um, it's funny you like you use the word translate and I think you know um, that's exactly what I feel like sort of my job is but I do it through this lens that's like deeply deeply personal because I I have these connections to sort of um, the culture that I grew up with, and I I sort of cast like sort of all this information or all the I make all these connections, and then I funnel it through you know my own personal experience um, as a child of Argentine speaking the Spanish language, which is like definitely like a. Um, an opportunity to to kind of infiltrate um, what was going on in the Basque country, both culinarily and culturally, and then also to meet my husband and conduct our lives in Spanish uh, because he speaks Spanish as well as Euskera. Um, and he is from the Basque region. Yeah, my husband's Basque, and um, so I feel like it's sort of his cuisine as told by by me, and and as I interpreted it, even with sort of all of my. Um, misinterpretations, uh, yeah. But I, I, you know, at the restaurant as well as sort of in the book, we try to be extremely loyal, um, you know, to to the authenticity of the cuisine, and then also um, to our sort of deeply personal interaction with the cuisine and like what we contribute to it and what um, what's flexible and what's not. Well, that's what I gathered from from reading the book is that there. You really, you, you even say that some of these recipes are so traditional that 
I mean, someone's grandmother may have been making the same dish exactly the way that you're making it, that it really, there's nothing much about that has changed. Maybe, you know, yes, you're using an electric blender or something, right. you know, but, but the ingredients as true as you can be. Now, how, now tell me about what, we'll start, start from the beginning then. What are some of the, as you say, the iconic ingredients in, that represent or uh, describe the Basque cuisine? Um, well, when it comes to like sort of flavoring agents, it's olive oil, garlic, parsley, and peppers. Um, peppers are not native to the Basque country, but they incorporated them uh, rapidly and will, <laughs> and um, and put them, you know, to good use. All in they got in, there pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, and and then they um, they you know use them fully. Same with potatoes, you know, not indigenous to the Basque country, right. but a huge staple for them. Um, Lots of onion. Um, tomatoes came in later, and they're used less so. Um, and then, I mean, the primary ingredients are, like, sort of primary proteins that they get from the sea. Um, cod is a huge one. Um, and then all, all kinds of shellfish and, and, and ocean fish and a little, to a lesser degree, river fish like trout. Um, uh, what else? Um, uh beef and cattle. I mean, they domesticate a lot of animals, a lot of um, uh, cured and uncured meats, uh, pork, and um, lots of legumes, beans, eggs. Well, in in describing these foods, you sort of also have to put it in the context of where it's located, where the Basque region is located, because certainly the geography determined a lot of their self-reliance and the difference of their food yeah um well they're located um as you said sort of in the north of spain on um on the cantabric coast and in the sort of like i mean biscaya biscayne like the uh, bay of biscayne yeah (laughs) and so um they became um very able shipbuilders and um would uh build these ships and go far off whaling and um, and had secret locations for cod in the New World, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know they uh, to to embark on these like sort of long you know expeditions. They would um, they were incredible navigators, and um, you know uh, Elcano was like Magellan's navigator mm-hmm. and like actually survived uh, while Magellan did not, and um, and I think. Uh, on on top of like what they would fish for and what they would gather as they were going on these like huge expeditions, they would take stuff with them that would last. And they had you know like all shipbuilders, they had like ship biscuits, they had pan sopaco, like these things that they would use um, um, as preserved diet for the people who were on the ships. So there was that aspect, and then mixed with this um, this sort of like adventure seeking quality where they would bring back stuff and. Um, incorporated into their cuisine sort of readily. They're not, they weren't so change adverse. And I think that's why, you know, the Basque survived, even though they're like the super old culture with this really old language. It was just that flexibility, that willingness to incorporate some things without losing sight of their own personal identity and their cultural identity that made them so successful. Right. And um, with the mountainous region to the, just right. beyond they them, protected. they were, yeah, they were protected and isolated. They were used to being very self-sufficient. Very self-sufficient. And they're like, they're very rugged. And so is the landscape. And um, they would like sort of turn over the soil and find like these very small fertile plots and create these huertas or like sort of 
I call them like kitchen gardens, where they would just grow enough for like one family. And there were a lot of these little plots, and you can still see them. They're like, you know, very active, and um, they would, um, you know, catch everything in the season and then can it or jar it or cure it and preserve it. So there's almost this sort of, I don't want to say like lack of seasonality to their cuisine, but like they eat similarly all year round and they eat similarly, similarly across like social economic mm. sort of cla- class. Like it's, there's a democracy to their cuisine and it sort of translates into this entitlement that everybody eat well. Um, because everyone eats the same and like a pea and a piece of meat have the same value. I mean, everything is highly regarded and, and because everything is highly regarded, everything has to be of quality. And it's just this thing that sort of tumbles into itself and it becomes this, you know, more than it's a diet, but it's also like a style of cooking that is Mm -hmm. like hyper simple. And the reason it can be so is because the quality is so good. That's interesting. Yeah, and you you actually talk a lot about that in in your book too, which I think was very important. That you just if you really seek out, and I, I've talked about this a lot on um, other European cuisines. If you if you really seek out the highest quality ingredients, then you really don't have to do a whole lot more to them. Right? You don't, but you ha- but you have to apply the right sort of technique, and then you have to um, respect the ingredient. I mean. We like to cook. We're restaurateurs and um, and professional cooks, so we want. I didn't mean that you didn't. Cook. No, no, but I, I think this elaborate. is this is the, the gentle balance, right? And um, and it's a balance that I think most very mature cooks, like at a certain time in their life, they stop adding stuff and they start subtracting things, um, but but they're still making an impact, and it, it it's just a very subtle impact, but it but people notice it in the way they enjoy the cuisine more than in like you can have flair and and have a really economical style and basque cuisine requires that of the cook and so if you're a certain if you if you have a certain kind of mature cook then you're sort of ready to take it on i think and but for families i think it's like a completely natural way to cook Hmm. Um, but as a chef like you have to be willing to like sort of curb the ego a little bit yeah but satisfy your own needs within the cuisine and yet technique, it was so much technique involved. I, I love what you said. You have to start, you know, a, a well-seasoned cook, a chef, has to subtract a lot of things. Yeah. You know, an example of one dish to me that, that really um, highlights what you just talked about is the, the pilbil. That you really have to understand the ingredients. You really have to understand the fish. And just be very gentle. It's not there are not a lot of ingredients, but it's just the technique and the and the care that's taken. Well, yeah. I mean, I should tell you what peel peel yes, is. Yes, yes. Right? Be- better. So peel uh, peel is actually. I mean, they make peel peel all over the Basque country, but like it's really a bit like sort of a huge deal in Biscaya, where my husband's from, because there's like different like sort of regions, and they specialize in different things and. Um, so peel uh, peel is a, a, a dish where you take a piece of salt cod um, that's been cured and sort of disgorged of all that salt. Um, you soak it. You put it through um, several days of soaking. And um, oftentimes they'll make it with the lesser pieces, though I really like it with, you know, I guess being spoiled, I like it with the, like, morro, like the bigger piece. Um, and um, so you gently poach it in olive oil that's been flavored with garlic and guindilla pepper, which is like just a 
a red pepper, a kind of spicy red pepper. Um, and um, you poach it uh, gently enough to not like let the fish contract and get dry and cottony. But it can't be so gentle <laughs> that you don't squeeze out the gelatin that lies between the skin and the tissue of the fish. Um, because if it's too gentle, then the gelatin stays inside. And if it's not gentle enough, then you like squeeze it all out and you actually destroy the gelatin. So it's just kind of percolating there and it's weeping out. I call it the tears of like the cod. And those little beads like sit at the bottom of the pots, kind of milky white. And when you take the fish out, when it's done, you let it rest. It drops a little more of that still. Put that back in the same poaching oil that you used um, to cook the fish and you start swirling that pan and it those little bubbles and beads start running into each other just like you know scientifically it's the same as, as an emulsion or a mayonnaise it's warm um, and um, as they bump into each other they start to like integrate with one another and you get this emulsified sauce which is the peel peel and the, the name peel peel comes from that percolating sound that like ping 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 uh, so it's, it's more about that extraction of the gelatin and making the, the sauce right, right? And, and it's beautiful it almost looks like a hollandaise I mean it's it's this beautiful unctuous yeah kind of almost yellow tinged sauce that right. it becomes beautiful I, and it's a, it's definitely like a hyper minimalist dish and it's a, um, for some people an acquired taste because um uh, the cod, and you know, at our restaurant, it's a very delicate, very elegant flavor. But sometimes, if you use too strong an olive oil, it can, you know, have like a more sort of bitter, you know, flavor from the olive oil. Or if you have a fish that has some kind of like that slight rancidity, like rancidity to it, it will take on that kind of funkiness. And those are flavors that are appreciated in the Basque country. But like, it, you have to like make it to your. That's where your taste or your sort of selection comes in. Like. You know what is your oil like? What is, um, what is the garlic? Because garlic changes mm, yeah. too. Like they have that kind of purple reddish tinged garlic there. Um, what part of the fish are you using, and how is it dried and unprepared? And those are, those are all opportunities for the cook to like sort of imply their, um, their standards. Yeah, excellent. You know, I have to say that this book you mentioned, deli- you know, delicate flavors, delicate um, dishes, and. Uh, it, it's a real education, this book, because I was surprised, number one, by it was so much that it's practically all fish. Not It's not all fish, but so much fish. You know, I think when the uninitiated or, or those who are uneducated about the Basque region first think of Basque country and Basque cuisine, they think, oh, big, big fires outside and meat on the grill and a lot of big cookouts. But then you open the pages of your book, and it's all of these these delicate flavors that are combined primarily with fish mm-hmm. and it, it was a, a beautiful revelation for me it was really quite nice yeah i mean uh, we have a whole chapter on fish it's called um buscando bacalao or finding cod and um and uh definitely they um uh, they are fish cooks and like uh, they you know one thing I think I say it in the book I don't remember but my husband said to me when we first met like I, I think I was suggesting that we make some dish at a restaurant that we worked um, at together and he said oh we would never do that to fish <laughs> we would never he was like that's French like we would never treat fish like meat like fish you know we would never cover it up we would never make a sauce that like 
didn't like sort of harmonize with the fish. And um, for me, that was like a real turning point in like how I viewed fish. And I always like try to be uh, very like sort of respectful of whatever the flavor of that fish is, because if you have the quality of fish that they're used to having, then then you would never make a sauce that was like powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and yeah. you mentioned that cod, mentioned cod was so important in their diet, in their yeah. survival, and they would they had their secret, the, you know, the, the they had their secret sailors sources. knew where to go. Right? Yeah, and I think also, I mean, other things happen, like things that are accidental, like there's this myth that um, that right before like a large famine, um, uh, there was a misunderstanding between someone who was ordering like, you know, bacaladas, like a million bacaladas, and I think they added an extra zero, it was like, maybe it was like a hundred or or a hundred thousand or something like that, and then they accidentally ordered a ton, and the fish was actually delivered. And right after the fish was delivered, there was like this huge famine. So it kind of like saved the whole the whole <laughs> culture and the society, and they became like super cod eaters. I guess the way that like you know you know when we think of like the Irish and the potato famine or whatever, mm-hmm. like they got this staple that ended up you know by accident saving. Like you know, saving the nation, so to speak. Right. Like, uh, great. So there's like a lot of mythology attached to the cod as well. And they had so much extra, they had to dry it. Yeah. Well, they dried it. They would always dry it, and it would it was able to keep, and it kept a lot of people fed for a long time. Um, But they also eat a lot of vegetables, and I think one thing that they had was this like very integrated um, way of eating. Like they had these kitchen gardens, and then they had all these legumes that they would like dry and use throughout the year. And then they would have, like, anchovies and sardines that they would put under salt and, and cure, like, you know, the, like just like Romans did. Right. And then they had the salt cod. Um, and then they did have, like, domesticated animals, but they, um, they would eat, like, the byproducts of, like, making wine or making cider, and they would eat the pulp from the apples, and they would be, like, these breeds that would survive well in the mountains. So they had breeds of animals that were also just as rugged as the people kind of hmm. and then they would have this very balanced diet that was quite healthy amazing well we're going to talk more about the the animals as well as salt when we come back after a short break Nettle Meadow Farm Cheese and Spirits Pairing is a celebration of good food and beverages in the newly restored Barn Loft event venue at Nettle Meadow Farm in Thurman, New York. On Saturday, June 18th, come sample and savor, then buy your favorite cheeses and beverages to take home. Nettle Meadow cheeses have been praised highly in national media and have won prestigious awards from the American Cheese Society. Taste samples of goat and sheep cheeses paired with an array of local regional wines, beers, and ciders. You'll never forget your first sample of rich, creamy Kunick, Nettle Meadow's trademark cheese. In Esquire, our very own Ann Saxelby said, Kunick, it may very well be the sexiest cheese in the USA. Nettle Meadow Farm is a goat and sheep dairy and cheese company in Thurman, New York, just below Crane Mountain in the Adirondacks between Gore Mountain, North Creek, and Warrensburg. It's owned and operated by Lorraine Limbiase and Sheila Flanagan. Both have a great love of animals, artisan cheese, and the unique challenges of farm life. 
Nettle Meadow Farm was originally founded in 1990, and it's the home of over 300 goats, dozens of sheep, and a variety of farm sanctuary animals. Again, the Cheese and Spirits pairing is Saturday, June 18th. For more information and tickets, visit NettleMeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. That's N-E-T-T-L-E, MeadowCheeseAndSpirits.com. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm speaking with Alex Reich. She and her husband, Eder Montero, uh, own uh, the restaurant in New York City, a Basque restaurant, the only Basque restaurant. Is that correct? Is that the only one right now? Um, no, I think there, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple other restaurants um, that, well, there's one that has a Basque name, I think, yeah. too, and then there's another one um, that is uh, supposed it's, I guess it's bad. Well, we're talking about yours, yeah, and it's Chiquito. Ours, I think we are the, I like to say we're the only truly authentic okay, uh, Basque restaurant, so that's my... You know. And they have a, a new book recently um, out called The Basque Book. If, if you want to know, if you really want to understand the cuisine of the Basque world, um, this is, is definitely an education. It's a beautiful book. And uh, one thing that I think is very interesting in that ancient language, the Euskero, is that what it is? Euskera. Euskera. Yeah. Um, is that they, that it's only spoken, there's an interesting story about that. It's only spoken in that region and not outside the region, right? And and it was forbidden to speak for a while. Is that correct? During Franco's reign? Yes. Um, that is true. Um, the language is, is, as far as people can tell, not related to other languages. I think sometimes there have been similarities with... Um, like Hungarian or Finnish, I've heard, but like, hmm. but also like sometimes there's like words in Japanese, like like chori is, means bird, I think, in both languages or something. I'm not, I've heard like, the, but it there it's just like one word at a time. It's not yeah. like really it. It's an agglutinating language, um, and um, yeah, it's it, and it was a language that had to be recovered, um, so it was like spoken in sort of secret. Uh, in the hillsides and in these like gastronomic societies, in the gastronomic, that's which I want to talk about. Yeah. Doors. <laughs> and um, and it was largely preserved through song and food, which is you know a big part of of Basque sort of like cultural life. And, well, and that's why I mentioned because um, certainly if, if you know anything about Basque cuisine, it probably comes from reading about festivals or or celebrations, something that all have to do with food. And someone had written that. That it was perhaps the language kept the the Basque, certainly the southern, I mean the the Spanish Basque region, and their food very unique mm-hmm. and not infiltrated with names from French in French of right. their dishes, right? But what's interesting is they don't have because it's not a modern language. They didn't have words for like new technological things, so they like <laughs> sort of add Basque endings onto stuff like. So they didn't, you know, obviously they don't have a word for television. I mean, they're like sort of, you know, old cave people. So so they, you know, it's a very improvised language. I think it's one of those languages kind of like Hebrew. And um, I heard that there were like people who like specifically were dedicated to um, to sort of recuperate, like recoup and modernize like the Basque language. And they went to um, Israel to talk to experts about how do you, how do you resuscitate like sort of a dead right. language? Right. Um, and they were um, extremely um, vocational about it, and 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 they got it done. And wow. every child in the Basque country studies Basque now. 
That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, that's it's pretty so, awesome. They're something all that being could raised have been lost. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of celebrations and 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 this joy of of eating, a large portion of your book is devoted to, and of course, people who know anything about other Spanish cuisines uh, know that um, uh, about tapas, or as you say in the Basque region, pinchos. Mm-hmm. Right? But you say that they can eat them all day long. But yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, they can. It's not uh, relegated specifically to a, a time? or Tell me about usually, that. Usually, I mean, it's like either in the morning before lunch um, or uh, in the evening before dinner. Their dinner in the Basque country, unless it's like a cena, like a, a big deal kind of dinner, is a very light sort of thing. Do they have their main meal at, at noon? or Yeah, or, around or, 2 o'clock. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of time to eat on both sides of that <laughs> uh, larger meal. And um, but they are—they aren't like what I call American about it. Like you know, they—they do go from place to place and they snack, but they don't. Um, I think because they have it every day, they don't go crazy the way the Americans do when they go there. <laughs> I mean, these things are visually stunning. They're like yeah. little canapes, basically, and it's come to a point where there's the like miniature cuisine, like. You know, they basically make a little entree in in a spoon or in, like, you know, they have even developed, like, special, like, sort of plates and containers for showcasing these beautiful um, creations. It's like a, like a, almost like jewelry or, hmm. um, or more like, it, it's almost like more akin to pastry, like the way that they display this stuff. Um and it's very eye-catching, and it all looks very delicious. And so then you, in some places you could pick your own and grab it yourself. In other places, um, they'll give it to you. Some things need to be heated. Some things you can just eat room temperature. And um, But what is the tradition is going from one place to another, from one bar to another. And usually somebody holds the purse, which is, you know, um, uh, a bunch of friends at Cuadrilla will get together, and everybody will put $10 in the purse, and then one person will be ordering the drinks and sort of controlling the purse and... Uh, grabbing pinchos here and there. No, well, that's kind of nice. Have yeah. someone else control the party, right? <laughs> it is, and it's like a mobile party unit, and um, and there's all generations involved sometimes, and so it's a lot of times around uh, square, and the kids will be playing in the middle, and everybody's sort of watching over each other's kids. So it's like a um, communal it's like a very activity. Sweet, yeah. yeah, nice. Primarily in restaurants or in homes or just set out uh, festivals in the street or those are bars. Those like are bars. they're they're okay. little bars. bars, and I think that's the thing is like a bar for them is like a family place. It's not it's not <laughs> like a, like this like it doesn't have that you know Puritan um, sort of bad name that bars might have for. Uh, well, they, for families here, yeah. good. They have they have a, a, a yeah, mature bar, way a of looking at it. Also, a cafe there. It's <laughs> right. like it 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 fills many many roles. Right. Well, you had mentioned um, the language being spoken in some of these gastronomic clubs or chocos. First of all, I forgot to ask you what chiquito. What what does it mean? Chiquito actually means small. Small. And, okay. uh, yeah, and uh, it's still a small restaurant. Though when we opened it, it was half the size, so it was even you know más chiquito. But chiquito, I like because uh, people know the Spanish word chiquito, which right. um, uh, probably comes from the Basque. I don't know. And um, chiquito is also another word for a small glass of wine that you drink as you go to these places for pinchos. And chiquiteros are people who sing when they go to these. So it had like it had a nice, and I felt like it would show people how to pronounce the TX, and over time yes. it would 
become familiar, which it did. I really think <laughs> I that, know the T. I mean, yeah. there's TX everywhere. You know, I know all the words. Now so, it is. And I got I got yeah. pretty good at uh, as I was reading the book. You know, pronouncing things. Yeah, it doesn't um, take a long time, but you know, you would believe, you would not believe how uh, you know how much flack we got for just calling it something starting with the TX. <laughs> well, yeah. another TX word, and those are the chocos. Yeah. So tell us about the chocos. So chocos are also called sociedades uh, gastronomicas, and um, there are these like sort of Basque uh, culinary societies. They're basically kitchens um, with dining rooms attached, um, where uh, traditionally men would go and cook on their own, and um, and women weren't even allowed to be or to cook. Um, increasingly now, women can like go in and eat um, freely. But they still don't participate in the cooking or the cleaning, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. And you know, my husband always tells it like that these are you know places for men uh, to congregate, and that Basque men specifically felt the need to have these sort of like men's spaces because um, it's a matriarchal society and women have a lot of power in the house. And um, that this is where men would escape and go and sing. And you know, interestingly, it's kind of where men go. They're very masculine, but but they're also very feminine. There, they cook and um, and they clean and they sing. And these are, are there, all attributes that, in a lot of cultures, are you know sort of women, female. Right. Attributes. And are the dishes? Were there any special uh, dishes that came out of these clubs, or that do come out of the clubs still? I mean, they still well, exist. Well, there's definitely right? like sort of like this this competitive like spirit. Like everyone's always outdoing each other and trying to really finesse these dishes. But the dishes are the sort of the Basque repertoire, which can be like any like lamb chops, whole fish, um, and um, uh, chuleta, and often elvers, which are these like little angulas they call them. Uh, these little baby eels, eels, which are just near extinction. I mean, they're only available at certain times of the year anyways, but the, the Japanese market has bought up a lot of these, and um, they're literally th- like thousands of euros per kilo. Hmm. Uh, so now they have like sort of mock elvers that they make. And, um, but yeah, you can make anything you want there, and it depends on the occasion. Sometimes they open their doors, like for San Sebastian Day or La Tamborada, and anybody can go in there, and then you have a very traditional, like, tamborada menu. But if you decide that you want to um, be in the choco with, like, family or a smaller group of friends, because the societies are quite large, and you, you can have membership at more than one even. Like, it can be along family lines, or it could be along cuadrilla, which are, like, sort of friend circle lines. Um, so it, it's like a club, and you can join more than one club. The more people, the people tend to be aligned with a specific choco. Hmm. You know, it's it's interesting because when you mention Basque to um, a lot of people in America, they immediately think of the Basque population out west in America, in Nevada and, and California. And, of course, they're all associated with sheep herding and, yes. and the big festivals they have and the, and the lively costumes of, of um, everyone wearing the, the red scarves and the pleated skirts and things and dancing around at the festival time of... Um, the killing, I guess, killing of the baby lambs or something. Yeah, whatever. They well, they, no, they do lots of um, festivals that are about yeah. But um, they and then that and so everyone assumes that the Basque people are all sheep herders back home, when in fact they're not. I mean, they're not, and they had a, a tremendous amount of industrial success um, with um, iron mining, and um, I. Uh, 
and and actually um, that industry like really created a lot of wealth in the Basque country and it turned out a lot of immigrants came from other parts of Spain and other parts of the world even Italian um, would go there uh, to uh, work in the iron industry so the Basque country like uh, developed uh, and they have a lot of ports um, uh, they developed a very strong economy which is I think you know you know was sort of Franco's primary interest yeah. in like uh, trying to control that region, and so many people wanted to control it, but the Basques really felt strongly about their autonomy, their, more their cultural autonomy and their economic autonomy. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, um, something that's still important to them. Um, and, um, and yeah, they actually are engaged in a lot of different types of commerce and a lot of different types of technology. And now... Um, they're um, really uh, engaged in like wave energy and like oh, they try to stay yeah. really current and I think that's one of the things that's really amazing about them is that, like they're very adaptive like they hold on to like their culture and like their sort of um, their their identity but then they also are unafraid um, to modernize and it's this push pull that I, I really think has been their success so to speak all you know, time. yeah. Like yeah. think about like the Romans are gone. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of other cultures that that were, you know were considered you know so successful are gone, right. and the Basques persist. And I think their ability to persist is this, exactly this sort of um, flexibility um, mixed with tenacity. Oh. Um, you, we didn't talk about um, the drinks. You were talking about the the, the um, small glasses that they would drink around, but side um, it's not. What, what do they drink primarily? Because I know cider is a big... Um, well, cider preceded wine, uh-huh. and then um, and then wine came. And um, so, they, yeah, they have a strong cider tradition. Their ciders are made from tannic apples. They're not eating apples, and the cider is tannic and, and tart, and it's delicious. Um, and then sort of um, in response to... Um, grapes coming into the region, they have some, like, steep stope, slopes and... Um, some cooler temperatures, which is, you know, uh, quite good for uh, growing wine. Um, and so they would also have small grape plots. Um, and they would uh, they grow um, some uh, white wine varieties that are used to make chocolate, which is like this like slightly spritzy white wine, often slightly spritzy. But um, as people become more sophisticated in winemaking, now they're making sort of... Uh, more traditional styles of wine, mm-hmm. but the but the chocolate originally was sort of a mirror image to um, cider. It's served like in a bottle that's similar to a cider, and it's poured uh, from up high a little bit, like um, like cider is as well. Um, and these um, the people who made the cider would often trade um, with the people who were rearing the beef, and then they would give the byproduct of the cider making process to the people who were raising animals. That was then used to finish the animals, and then the animals were come. Um, once they were butchered, they were shared with the people who were making the cider. So it created this whole, like, um, interrelated, interdependent um, uh, uh, society where people shared things. That's great. Um, yeah, and then they would make cheese, uh, which sort of fell into the same category. But they have a strong tradition of winemaking, and in different regions um, that are considered culturally Basque, like even in Navarra, they make amazing wines out of Garnacha, Cabernet, Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, in Rio Jalavesa, you see Tempranillo, Graciano, um, and um, and more sort of typical Spanish. 
Well, you, you mentioned that um, uh, earlier, and then also in um, in your book that salt was a very is very important. Well, obviously, salt's important to all of us, you know. But in the cooking, um, and the use of it, very special um, in the Basque cooking, and and you mentioned that there were I don't know if there still are, but were um, very well known salt beds in Bilbao. Yeah, I think actually, the, um, I don't know about the ones in Bilbao, um, but in um, in Victoria, in, in Alaba, outside mm. of Victoria, there are um, salt mines that are quite, quite famous. And um, they're very beautiful. And like they now they make like very designer salt there, too, like okay. kind of like Malden style <laughs> with yeah. the pyramids. And they pan for like all the fancy restaurants, which I should. I mean, one thing that's worth mentioning about if you're going to go travel the Basque Country, Basque Country has more Michelin stars, I think, um, per capita. I think I was going to, and I was going to say that you are holding one yourself here in America, but in but in the Basque region, I think there's over thirty. Yeah, star, I mean, Michelin stars in that small area somewhere. I have trouble keeping track because um, even when they lose uh, one star here, they gain another star within another restaurant. So, I mean, they take their food very seriously and they take their stars very seriously. Like, you know, it's, it's a huge honor there. And well, it is a pilgrimage yeah. to Mecca for a lot of, you know, chefs and, and budding chefs. I mean, to go to, to the Basque region to Yeah, and I think it's fun foods. also to go there and eat a cuisine that's not completely internationalized too mm-hmm. that an, still yeah, maintains its own identity too so that's fun what yeah. dish would you say i mean and also I'm, yeah it's keeping their their cuisine separate from the rest of spain you know i mean it's kind of difficult in some areas well because i think they have but, also had such an impact on the rest of spain that, right. that those are adopted as national who's dishes. is who's right yeah. <laughs> who came first um what is there one dish in particular that you feel is most representative I would say, I mean, the peel peel is for people who are really in the know, but um, but sort of um, in terms of like optically, the most visible dish is probably the squid and ink. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, I will tell you, the, the talking about the salt, um, because you had mentioned how it, you you know became so aware of the salt and not being able to add just add salt, say, to an, a fatty emulsion like a like right. a mayonnaise or something that you dissolve it first in water and then yeah. add it, blend it. I make seawater all the time. <laughs> and and you were going on talking about salt, and I decided, okay, last night I decided, I'm going to make a dish from your book for dinner. So oh, I, made, I made the monkfish in oh, Wow, um, you chose Sophia. like the hardest dish in the... Well, I'm, I, I, I will admit, I did a little bit of an abbreviated version. But the very first thing, of course, I had to do was I had to soak the monkfish in a brine. Yeah. So we're talking we're talking a cup of salt and you know, in, right. in 10 cups of water. I said... Hmm, that's interesting. I certainly would brine turkeys and and pork roasts or you know chickens. Well, why not? But the but the fish came from brine, and now I'm putting it back in brine. Right. But, so um, was I able to discern what difference it made in it? It was very good. I okay. can't tell you whether, but but also that. So I wanted wanted to talk too then about yes, peppers came late from the New World. They came, um, but they you know having all that navigational yeah. uh, ability, they had peppers early on and made quite good use of it and of course this is where we find a lot of the smoked peppers the smoked the paprikas the smoked mm-hmm. paprikas and that of this dish is redolent the monkfish is yeah. redolent of um, of the smoked paprika it's lovely yeah it's good and i think i mean the one thing i would say is if you ever have any doubt about sort of brining fish i mean you never want to brine it so much where your fish tastes like salt instead of like fish right but um but uh, that monkfish in particular is not cooked it, it's served with a broth but it's cooked 
like you poach it. Poach separate, wrapped right, many separate. times. Right. So it's not going to absorb salt from the bath that you're poaching it in. So that's one reason. But also sometimes fish cooks very, very quickly. And so if we do it with shrimp as well, for example. Even if we're going to boil it, we'll brine it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, a, co- a fish, like a shrimp, will, depending on the size, will cook in like 30 seconds. And that's not a lot of time to get it in contact with salt. With so you pull right. it out and it's like you bought this beautiful shrimp and it, it's not seasoned. Yeah. Or yeah. it's seasoned on the outside. Yeah. So. so many things to learn yeah. and so many things that are uh, old dishes made new again yeah which uh, you know they, and they're still old dishes but i mean you do a beautiful job of of presenting them to uh Thank what you. are some of the things that you maybe saw a dish that you've modified and made your own there are so many but i have to say i okay, mean that was a tough uh, yeah question. no i mean the monkfish is one <laughs> yeah. of them yeah because okay. that's sort of based on like a much more rustic stew what we do is like kind of clean it up and um and make things a little more elegant um, another dish that, you know, that we've definitely made our own is um, marmitaco. Like, um, that's kind of a rich tuna stew um, in the Basque country. And for me, it's, like, really rich and, like, the flavors aren't super clean. So we've found ways to express that dish that are maybe a little more deconstructed without being, like, for modern, modern palates. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, it's certainly, um, if you're in the New York area, uh, Chiquito is, is certainly a restaurant to go to. And then you have your choice of a couple others, the El Quinto Pino and La Which Vada. is right across the street from Chiquito. And um, so Chiquito is on 9th Avenue between 24th and 25th. And Oquinto Pino's across the street. And Lavara for your Brooklynites is in yeah, Brooklyn. Yeah, if you're in Brooklyn, Lavara <laughs> is a more sort of improvisational Spanish mm-hmm. restaurant. Yeah. But, but for all of you who want to learn about the Basque region, the book is definitely something to look at. It's a beautiful book and a very um, educational book in, in terms of all of those wonderful old recipes. It's called The Basque Book. A Love Letter in Recipes from the Kitchen of Chiquito by Alexandra Reich. I'm going to say that right. (laughs) Reich. R-A-I-G. It looks different than it sounds. Reich. And Eder Montero. I thank you so much. It was really uh, very um, eye-opening to me, and and um, I'm still tasting the wonderful flavors. Thank you flavors. so much for inviting me <laughs> and for reading the book. Right. And thank you, and tune in again to A I'm Taste of the, the Past. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.